Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro, and this is a public affair. And I want to start out by saying we're so excited to have Jeremy Saudard here, who is a professor and faculty chair of secondary education program at the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His research examines the role of media in teaching and learning history and democratic citizenship with a particular focus on engagement with difficult or marginal histories and contemporary controversial issues. How are you doing today, Jeremy? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And I will say I'm going to go back and forth between our very important conversation about banned books and, and what that kind of means and the history of that and being truly heartbroken. But this is the last time our producer, Rochelle, and I will work together. We've gotten to work together for a little over three years. She is absolutely one of the most phenomenal people I've gotten to know and work with. She is the curator of my book club um, and just a, an amazing like champion for, for you know, the, the free press and for the stories that we tell here at Wart. Also, huge shout out to everybody who gave last week and the week before that. Um, we had an incredible pledge drive. Thank you for keeping WORT in business and making sure a public affair stays on the air. Jeremy, I have thought a lot about how to talk about banned books and why, you know, why we're kind of seeing this rise of books being banned uh, across the country. You're seeing school boards actually um, get pretty passionate about censoring what kids read in, in the classroom. What is it about this particular moment that is kind of creating that dynamic? And how does it um, how is it informed by other times in history where banning books was really popular and exciting? Yeah, so obviously there's a, a long history of of books being banned. And I think part of it's the the symbol of books as being this, um, you know, way that knowledge is codified, but also shared and expanded to larger audiences. Um, prior to, you know, the printing press is a select few that would sort of hold the knowledge and the books that would be there. And that would largely be religious elites, you know, aristocracy, who would have access to these things. Once that knowledge is spread through books, it also represents a threat. Um, and I think particularly books that challenge national narratives, that challenge um, maybe conceptions that especially a dominant culture might hold, um, can be seen as a threat. And, and I think this happened, you know, historically it happened when a book maybe threatened the religious hierarchy. Um, and then later the sort of, um, during the, uh, the era around the Civil War, you saw Uncle Tom's Cabin being banned in some areas because of its portrayal of slavery, because of the abolitionist movement. Yeah, you have. You know, there's a really a famous quote from Abraham Lincoln where he approaches Harriet Beaker so and says, oh, so you're the little lady who started the Civil War, like basically saying that Uncle Tom's Cabin was so popular and so controversial um, that, that people went to war because of that dis- depiction of, of slavery. Definitely. When, and then you see other conservative moments in terms of in society where you see things around pornography or morality that that books have been banned within schools or outside but often it's it's religion it's some kind of uh, a political view that challenges the dominant society or um, something that's seen as immoral in I wanna, some way I want to lean into the conversation about religion because it does seem to be dictating so much of what is being banned, right? Whether it is books that highlight the experiences of LGBTQ youth um, being seen as sinful or Harry Potter being, you know, critiqued for for witchcraft. Um, there, we're in this kind of interesting moment around, you know, faith as a vehicle to censor and control. Um, and, and we're seeing that around the world, right? In Iran right now, there's a, a, a series of protests that are taking place that are kind of rocking a nation because a woman was killed for showing too much of her hair. Um, 
you know, we're we're having a conversation right now, an ongoing conversation right here at WORT 89.9 FM about reproductive rights. Um, and so much of what justified, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade was about people's faith, people's people's religious views uh, around abortion and, and miscarriage and pregnancy and sex. Um uh, why are we kind of having or seeing, you know, it felt like for a long time in in the United States, folks talked about people moving away from religion, moving away from the church, that less pe- less and less people are attending church, are uh, re- religiously affiliated. Why are we having this kind of uptick in, you know, people's faith dictating what our kids can read at school? I mean, I, th- I think there's two reasons. One is you've always historically in the U.S. had folks with very strong sort of fundamentalist religious beliefs. Um, But in this particular moment, you know, I also see it as an underlying um, political strategy. They know that folks with these strong beliefs um, when they pick issues such as having books that might show LGBTQ youth or families in the classroom as being able to mobilize those populations. And so anytime you see a political party or a political movement who's maybe in the need for a way to get people mobilized for their actions, they're using events like this in some ways as a political strategy. Um, And it's also a way to raise money. I mean, I think, you know, as we're all seeing in Wisconsin, I don't know what we're up to now in terms of political ads, but I bet we're over $100 million already in the current um, election cycle. That all costs money. And a lot of it is raised by politicians using issues that are going to mobilize people. And for for whatever reason, this, these are the types of ones that have resonated in the last couple of election cycles are around education and around these things that are seen as threats. But it's interesting to think like you would imagine we would want people to be well educated. We'd want people to be well read. We'd want our kids to be critical thinkers um, that, you know, we're we're at a time where. It's not abnormal for for women to be part of the workforce. It's not abnormal for folks to be out members of the LGBTQ community um, and hold, you know, positions of of authority. We're in a state like Wisconsin where, you know, Tammy Baldwin was the first LGBTQ person to serve in the sentence on the Senate. Um, So I, I would I think there's a part of me that wishes we were kind of past this moment. And I guess I wonder how we got back to banning books. Um, it seems as if, you know, there was a, a time in which, you know, folks were more kind of aware of fascism, more kind of aware of, of the harm that, you know, I think there was a time where it was easy for folks to recall the Nazis burning books. Um, how did we kind of you know, move away from being critical of of banning books to it being a strategic part of of a party's approach to getting elected. Yeah, I think the um, our our dean Diana Hess, who studies controversial issues, talks a lot about tipping points. And when you're getting to one of these places that's a tipping point in society on an issue, you know, oftentimes there's a strong backlash before you see that sort of tipping point fully go. And so part of you, me wonders, you know, are we at one of those points because of demographic changes, because of the, the changes on social issues like you're talking about? Are we just at a point where this is sort of a last attempt at, um, you know, this sort of uh, belief that this is the dominant culture still might believe in some of these things? I think also, you know, the books is, is, I think, a historic symbol that we all know because of the examples you raise. But this is part of a larger attempt to control overall what content reaches classrooms. Um, and this comes in with some of the legislation that's been proposed around the U.S. against um, anything that can be deemed as causing discomfort or anything looking at, you know, these, these so-called sort of anti-CRT or anti-critical race theory laws that um, have been now in almost every state in the country, they've been at least proposed, and a number of them have been passed, where schools and school boards can actually get fined if teachers are teaching concepts or ideas that might be seen as divisive. Doesn't this feel like slightly futile at a time when we have the internet. So on this day, on October 3rd in 1957, the space age began. Uh, you know, the the Soviet Union at the time sent the first uh, satellite into orbit um, <laughs> at a time where, you know, our kids are walking around with an encyclopedia exci- in their pocket. Um, 
you know, how how the technology of reading has changed. So banning books or, or getting mad at school librarians, um, it doesn't feel like necessarily a, a realistic way to keep kids or young people from getting information they're interested in. What it does seem to do, though, quite effectively is make people distrust schools um, and and become really interested in micromanaging what is happening within education. Can you talk a little bit about um, that strategy as a political strategy to kind of to kind of make people um, really critical of public education, to make people afraid of what's being taught in schools today? Uh, how, where does that where does that come from and why are people buying into that? Yeah, I think ever ever since, you know, historically since especially the federal government had more of a play in schools and schooling and what that looked like with, for example, the American Disabilities Act that brought in, um, you know, sort of protections for students with disabilities, um, as well as um, issues after school desegregation and Brown, you know, those were places where schools, the federal government was more involved with schools and what was going on. And since then, we've seen pushback against that. And so these have come in several ways. One is curricularly. So in terms of a nation at risk report, which came out in the Reagan era, really kick fired the standards movement and the standards movement, as much as it's about maybe having high expectations, their particular expectations are being held high and, and to favor particular groups. And so they also limit then what's being taught in the classroom. After that, we see, you know, standardized testing coming in. Then we saw the wave of sort of the citizenship test being used in schools as a graduation exam. Meanwhile, Wisconsin doesn't even require civics education for graduation. Um, so a student can go throughout without actually taking a civics or government class in some districts and successfully graduate. And so it, it is part of these controls over what students should learn, what knowledge is of most worth. And the most recent version of that are these laws trying to control um, you know, what's coming into the classroom. And even when I talk to teachers and show them the actual legislation, they'll, they'll laugh because one of them is a transparency bill, which means you have to have everything you're going to teach for the next year up by like July 1 of the previous summer. Um, and no one knows what they're going to be teaching. And first year teachers in particular have no clue what they're going to be teaching in the middle of October, let alone, you know, at the end of the school year. So these are all ways of trying to control public schools. And some people have read it as, by controlling and doing these things, you're deprofessionalizing teachers, you're driving teachers out of the workforce. Um, and it's in a goal actually to, to sort of um, either bankrupt or destroy public education because they don't want it. Um, and that's, you know, maybe that's a, a, a big sort of extreme read on it, but it's definitely one that seems to be um, playing out to some degree, especially with the more local actions being taken. Um, at school boards. School boards are named in litigation in these cases. A $6,000 fine every time, you know, a teacher is, a teaches one of these things goes against the school district. Or um, as the case in Virginia was, if a, if a teacher is um, teaching some of these concepts that are divisive, they actually can take the money that would be funded for that student for that year and give it to them essentially as a, as a grant to go and take to a private school. Um, so the actual mechanisms in the legislation tell you a lot oftentimes about what the real goal of the legislation is. Right. So if the goal isn't actually to keep kids from information because they can access the information on their phone, the goal becomes to get people worried about what's going on in schools. And I think in a state like Wisconsin, this is really interesting because we are a school choice state. You know, Jeremy, I'm sure you're aware that you, we don't you don't have to teach the same kind of human growth and development in Wanakee that you teach in Madison, that one school district can say we want medically accurate LGBTQ inclusive consent based human growth and development and another school can say we're, we're teaching abstinence only. So in that way, you know, the, the conversation, I think, changes from, well, why do you need to ban books in a state like Wisconsin when you have this very regional approach? Um, you know, can't you just kind of trust that in a place like Kettle Moraine, those books are already being left out? So what 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 does this do to to educators or what position does this put educators in in terms of, you know, finding a, a place to work and what they can expect from the the environment they're going to be teaching in? Yeah, we, we actually did a, um, a study after the 2020 presidential election and surveyed teachers around the country or around 12 states actually that that were teaching the elections and then we followed up them with a smaller set after january 6th with an interview 
um, to find out what, how did they actually approach it and what types of topics were there and what we learned more about were the context themselves in which they're teaching in. And, and as you're pointing out, the context really matters. And in some of these cases, it was an extremely sort of toxic workplace, essentially, where they were um, getting messages from administration that were highly political, or they were being basically told not to do anything, which as a professional, which teachers are trained as professionals to be able to engage in these topics, you know, that's something that then you're not in a very fulfilling position to be in. So I think part of the motivation behind many of these laws from, um, you know, banning teachers unions to regulating what teachers can do to controlling what they're doing by these standardized tests that are at the end of the exam, because that really drives then how you're evaluated and any kind of um, long-term position you have or any kind of raise that you might get, you know, those are all things that are being done to control teachers. And at the local level, then, as you're pointing out in the Midwest, a lot of the, the control is still at the local level. And so school, school districts or school boards can approve curriculum for the local district. In general, Wisconsin state sort of standards and requirements are pretty broad for graduation. You know, you have to have a course in X to be able to graduate, but it's not outlining the specific content in it. So then it really is at the local level. And historically, teachers have been treated as professionals to make those kinds of decisions and to work together collaboratively. I taught in Minnesota and we would get together, all the US history teachers would get together and plan out K-12. What was this gonna look like in the iterations they have? What topics are going where? And what skills are we building, you know, in different grade levels to go along with it? And we would work together to design the content and then run it through our administration. And I think that's the control now that's that's coming um, externally um, from parents, from largely activist groups as well. Um, in some cases, these aren't even people who have kids in the school district who are able to file these kinds of complaints against teachers. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is that it does seem cruel to undermine the integrity of a child's education by demoralizing their teachers, by, you know, taking away their teachers' unions, taking away their teachers' rights in the classroom, um, and and turning their teachers into kind of folks that we should be suspicious, suspicious of, right? Like, um, I think that it's, it's hard to imagine that there's somebody, like, sitting out there twisting their mustache going, how do I undermine the integrity of a child's education and sabotage the success of educators. Um, so where what you know, I think usually when when you're talking about the folks you don't agree with, you try to find the 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 compassionate way to represent their argument. Um, and I really struggle with that as a person who's pretty passionate about public education. But in your research, in looking at the folks who have, you know, promoted the banning of books, um, you know, if if their if their hearts are in the right place, where where are their hearts? Like what what is the thing that because they're not telling themselves they want to sabotage public education and educators. They're telling themselves something something different. So so talk to me about how this works for the people who agree with it. Yeah, I, I think for especially um, recently with the push on parental choice and um, and and the sort of role that they should play in schools, there's a couple of historic examples to look to, right? One is desegregation in that how were parents mobilized against desegregation in places like Virginia, where I taught for 13 years, to the point where they shut down whole county systems for up to five years in order to Jesus. avoid integration and the taxes, and they were using sort of tax money that was collected as, as private grants towards, um, towards private schools. And so you see examples like that where parents were effectively mobilized um, as then precedents that today they're looking at the same thing. How can we engage students or parents in similar ways to sort of counter some of the things we're seeing in schools? Part of this, I think, is also, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd, um, you know, sort of the, the actions that were taken for racial justice after George Floyd in 2020, for example, you saw a lot of teachers then recognizing the need to fill in some of the gaps of their own curriculum around anti-racism, around teaching more black history, for example. You saw this coming into schools a lot in response to that sort of racial reckoning. And to some degree, you could read these, this is a pushback to that, um, you know, to what was going on in classrooms. And I think that's how it's being used as a trigger. So I think for parents today, 
One, they're being told they should have more of a role as to what issues or topics their students engage in in class or not. I have to um, say there's something amazing yeah. about the irony of parent choice at a time where we've overturned Roe v. Wade, right? Like you want the parent to dictate what goes on in the classroom, but not whether or not to become a parent. Yeah, yes. there's always a bit of a hypocrisy on what's banned or not banned. There's free speech in some things, but not when it comes to, you know, my kid. And I think the thing we have to remember is, and this was true back in the, you know, in, in other areas as well, school's one of the only places now where people might come together that actually share different views. Um, you know, we don't necessarily live in communities with people that have different religious, political views, different social, social economic status. Right. Schools are maybe the place where they actually do come together to engage with people that might have different views and experiences and backgrounds from them. And yet here we see them trying to control even what can happen in those spaces. And I think that's a that's another sort of um, threat in some ways that's being used um, with parents here. Uh, but definitely, I think people believe that they want to protect their kids in many ways. And that's also a historic piece. And I used to work in ed tech and I would see kids in the back of the classroom on laptops, like getting around the filters that were supposed to stop them from seeing all this information. Like within 30 seconds, they were around the filters and getting content. You know, they just kept switching languages on the games they wanted to play, whatever it was, <laughs> they found ways to do it pretty easily. So there's a long history of protectionism in US schools. Um, the most recent version are sort of these internet filters and things. Um, but this is another version of it in terms of you're gonna protect your child from whatever this book represents. And I think books just become a very big political symbol um, and especially around when you're trying to bring in books that are exposing them to different identities, different political or not political views, even sort of ethnic experiences, maybe. I think it's amazing, though, to think about like the same people who are afraid of the book are mad when a black parent says, I'm afraid my kid's going to get shot by the police. Right. Like so that same sense of like you're afraid of your kid's safety when they pick up Beloved. Um, I'm afraid of of my kid's safer, safety when when somebody is is armed. Um, or, you know, it's the same people who are afraid of books often who are, are pro, you know, access to to guns. Um, and I, I think there's there's something that has to be kind of teased out when we have when we have these conversations about why, um, where that fear comes from. And I really appreciate you talking about kind of the racial history um, of this immediate moment. If you are just joining, if you're just tuning in, just jumping into your car, sitting down for lunch, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. My name is Ali Maldro, and today we're talking about the recent rise in book bans with Professor Jeremy Stoddard. We have a caller on the line, so I want to welcome you to the show. Leo, how are you doing today? Just fine, thank you. Um, I read a few years ago that Madison Public Schools were graduating students who could not read. And I'm curious to know, how does the Madison School Board allow something like that to happen in the public schools? Why aren't those students sent to remedial reading exercises instead of allowing them to graduate unable to read? Thank you. You know, I, I've heard that, that claim uh, a few times as well, and I want to thank you for, for bringing that question to the air, Leo. Um, I think that there's this, this idea that somehow certain groups of students, particularly black and brown students, are incapable of learning, um, are not intellectually, you know, um, valuable. And so I think spreading a mythology that these young people are scamming the system and getting out of school without having, you know, gained the kind of basic skills to graduate um, is another way of, of insulting certain students intellectually. Um, and I haven't actually seen data that verifies um, that students are, are exiting our, our district without the ability to read. In fact, we, you know, we have students who are, are exiting our, our district and are incredibly academically successful. And we have students who find a way to graduate despite really struggling um, throughout their education. Um, but I, I'm curious, Jeremy, what do, you, what do you think when you hear something like that or when you hear people kind of express those concerns about public education, that public education isn't equipping young people with the skills they need to be successful outside of school? 
Um, that that narrative seems to be a really powerful narrative, even in a place like Madison. Madison's supposed to be a really progressive town. It has produced some of the greatest racial inequities um, of school districts across the country. Yeah, I think um, anytime, and I don't know the specific report that the caller is referring to, but I think my my question first, whenever I hear these things, is to look at what's the actual measure being used. Um, and so when they're talking about graduating without literacy, what's the measure that's there in terms of what that literacy means? What's the test that's being used? What's the assessment that's being used? Are they not at a certain grade level when they're graduating in terms of the metric? And is that test really a, a fair and equitable sort of assessment of, of what it means to be literate? Um, and I think that's the question that we always raise when we look at assessments or reports on things like literacy or being able to do a certain grade level of mathematics. So um, I, I've yep, heard yeah. people talk about this for a long time. And people who say kids are graduating and they can't read, um, they don't usually cite a source, right? So what that tells me is they like the way that that sounds. They like that story about our public schools. Um, and I, I, I get curious about, like, it's interesting when people ban a book they haven't read, right? You like the idea that you have about this book. You don't actually have to know whether or not you're right. It affirms your worldview, and therefore you can kind of take it and run with it. How does how does that uh, shape the conversations we're having right now, where people aren't really talking about accurate information? You saw this with COVID, right? Like people were kind of like, "This is the the sensationalized bit of information that most appeals to me. I'm going to take that and run with it um, and treat it like it, it it's an accurate depiction of reality." Um, how do, how does that play into this? Yeah, I think even when you saw the the case um, earlier this summer of Muskego schools and um, not including a book that's on the Japanese internment um, as part of their AP curriculum list. And if you look at the description of why they didn't choose it, I believe it was a school board member is quoted as, you know, looking and seeing it had bad reviews online or something to that effect. And so I, I think it is important um, when we're making choices around things like books you're going to include in the curriculum or more so what you include in, in a library for access to students. There's two things. One is, you know, is the content appropriate for schools given the community, the school, the professionals who are involved in making the cho choices of sort of which books are included in the curriculum or not. But it should be all of those voices in there. And the second part is what's the goal of engaging with these books? Most of the time our goals, especially in a literature course or in a history course, would be to actually look at what the context the author's working in, the big point or, or thing, the argument that they're making, the questions they're trying to raise for us, and really looking at it from a literary point of view. We're not looking at it as taking it as a matter of fact, this is exactly what we should be learning or taking from every single book, right? It is looked at as a particular representation, as a particular way of viewing the world. And that's why we engage with literature, because in many cases, it's, it's pre presenting to us a narrative that we haven't thought about, maybe challenging our own views on the world. And that's why you should be looking at books that even maybe you disagree with. It doesn't mean we want you to accept it without considering those things. And I think that's the role of, of teachers, right? They're selecting books to try to challenge students to think about the world in more complex ways. Oh, I so appreciate you saying that, Jeremy. And I really, I want to ask you, you know, there are, I worry sometimes that we, especially those of us who identify as progressive, think of um, the folks who are banning books as kind of this fringe of people that will go away by themselves. And I actually think that throughout history, that's that's often been the approach to kind of the rise of, of fascism has been, oh, that's a few people who are a little extreme. We, ex we respect their right to be that way, um, but the majority of people aren't going to go along with that until the majority of people do start to go along with that. Should we be worried um, that as banning books becomes more and more popular, it is kind of the writing on the wall that we're going to get to something worse. As the conversation about education um, becomes more and more divisive, what does that what does that mean we can anticipate for kind of the the next the next wave of of you know how how our kids and our schools will be used politically 
I mean, I, I think this is the the big question that a lot of folks who study polarization in particular are are looking at because these are forms of of what are referred to as affective polarization, meaning you know bringing these extreme views in to try to get people to be mobilized for a political purpose and and using sort of emotional things or things that you know again it's it's they legitimately fear that that their children might be harmed. For example, they're they're really trying to. Um, I I think I always look at it from um, the best cop possible read that, as you mentioned before, that these folks think that they're doing good um, and they aren't recognizing that they're also possibly being used. And this isn't only on the right. I think it happens across the political spectrum, but more and more extreme these days that they are being sort of mobilized by some of these topics, but maybe for a different purpose than they're recognizing. And I think one of the things that we know and that I, I look at in a different project of mine is trying to help um, young people especially now understand that most people in a state like Wisconsin actually hold relatively moderate views on many, many issues. And to help to start to recognize that you can have people with different views and they can both be reasonable people and aren't evil or aren't you know crazy or anything like that. And so I think engaging with books in schools and having those conversations is one way for other students to see how each other read the book. I want I want to really lean into what you're saying and I want to agree with you and I've I've had conversations on the air where I'm really trying to kind of think about things in a way that um you know that I wouldn't usually think about and I guess I feel like I've started to draw the line at myself right it's fine for you to have whatever opinion you want as long as that opinion impacts you and not me when your opinion impacts me and not you um, and and you have the authority to alter my rights towards my body and and you know what my kid gets to read at school and my safety um, we're not reasonable people disagreeing I don't think that that folks who are who are advocating to to overturn Roe v. Wade are are being reasonable. I think, you know, I was having a conversation with a kid who um, was protesting abortion, you know, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, which I thought was, I was like, that's a lot of gusto. Um, and, you know, he, a young person who cannot get pregnant, has never had sex, um, doesn't have any idea what the reality of pregnancy looks like, but but thinks that they have the authority to weigh in on what somebody else should do with their body. Um, and so I, I do wonder if the we can be reasonable and disagree rhetoric um, could could harm us if we're not taking seriously the threat of, of really dangerous ideas. I think it's a really dangerous idea to ban books. I don't yeah, think it's so reasonable. Yeah, I think, and, and what I was referring to there is if you look at actually the, the opinion polling on something like abortion, right, it's a vast majority of people think that should be someone's choice to have an abortion. And yet it's a and felony so then, in this state. So yeah, I'm so like, then you something's wrong. At, <laughs> yeah, so you need to look at sort of who's controlling and who's benefiting, who is that small group who are then have the power to be able to do it. And and the, the questions that we're looking at more so is around um, public policy, so these are things more around gun control, not to change their minds, but to understand why someone up north who does hunting and fishing is going to have a different view on gun control than someone in Milwaukee, maybe. And using that and understanding then to be able to advocate more strongly and more thoughtfully for your position. And we think make them less susceptible then to some of the really strong national rhetoric that is coming into things like the book banning. So I think... What I'm saying is we're, we're sort of trying to look at how with young people to play the long game against some of these polarizing forces across the state and get them to be more thoughtful about what's happening when someone tries to plant something around like these books are threatening our kids ideas. Can we also talk about kind of the appeal of power at a time when there's an economic crisis, right? So at a time when we have really high inflation during the pandemic, um, during the recession, there is this different relationship people have to power interpersonally. And I think about this in terms of, you know, what's happening in Iran right now. If you say, well, who benefits from controlling women to this extent? Um, I think a lot of people would say men. Men, you know, no matter what your income is, no matter what your situation is, you get you have the authority to treat all women as second class citizens. Um 
are we in kind of a moment in which the appeal of power really allows our government to pit people against each other strategically so that folks are not looking for solutions to kind of their immediate material situation, but are outletting their frustration with that situation on groups that they feel superior to? Yeah, I, and I think part of it is if you look at the U.S. political system, it was designed in a certain time to to do certain things. And if you look nationally, you know, at the makeup of, of who's actually represented by the 100 senators in terms of the numbers of people when there are two senators from Wyoming who represent, you know, hundreds of thousands of people versus the two from California, which is 20 millions of people. Um, I think you see that the system isn't working to be a representative in the way it was originally really thought of. At the state level, we see the same thing. Well, I would I would push back on the idea that this system was originally supposed to be representative. Uh, as, yeah. as a black woman yeah. in America, I'm like, I'm like uh, it was always supposed to preference certain people, and it still preferences certain people. Yeah. And I think if we're not honest about you know, I'm like, if we're not honest about the history of this country and, and the way exclusion is baked in, um, I think that we're 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 not going to have the conversations we need to have about this. I want to remind everybody that you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Ali Muldrow. I'm your host. This is a public affair. And we're talking about the recent rise in book bans with Professor Jeremy Soddard. If you would like to join the conversation with a question or comment, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or reach out to us on Twitter at WORT Talk um, or the public affair page on Facebook. And our amazing producer, Rochelle, will connect you to the show. It is her last time being, being on the show with us. Um, and... That makes me really, really sad, but she's she's incredible. So if you also just want to call and say, hey, Rochelle, thank you so much for making a public affair possible during the pandemic, for keeping us up and running, for bringing great people onto the air, I really encourage you to call 608-256-2001 and tell somebody, somebody amazing that you appreciate what they do behind the scenes because this show couldn't happen without Rochelle Wilson. Um, and we're going to miss her so much. Jeremy, jumping back into the conversation about banned books and kind of our, our current climate, from kind of your historical lens, looking back at, at how this moment compares to other moments where banned books has become really popular, what are some things that you, you know, might find kind of strikingly similar or strikingly different in terms of the, the historical relationship we have to banning books in America? You know, I think I think it used to be the inclusion of um, ideas that were seemed divisive, maybe for um, reasons around. I think historically it was it was different things at different times, right? So gender would have been a large issue in a previous period of of book banning. You know, at a time when even in the early nineteen you know nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, even. You know, a teacher still, when they got pregnant, generally speaking, had to quit the classroom, right? Until labor unions came, really came in and started those protections, because the belief was that, um, you know, having a pregnant teacher around, just the symbol of it was somehow going to set off a rash of, you know, immoral actions among students in a, in, in a school. And so I think today we see two big pushes, I think, that are both representative, as you were saying before, of, of sort of large shifts in U.S. social views. One is the inclusion more and more, especially in earlier grades of um, books that represent um, multiracial families, that represent um, you know, gay lesbian families, um, parents and, and their families. Some of these things that are representing a more inclusive environment than um, maybe what some students are exposed to. And that's the purpose behind why the teachers are including those is to make sure that one, all the students in their class feel represented if they do have children um, that come out of that are part of multiracial families, for example, but also that other students who don't come from those families are also, you know, engaged with understanding that, um, you know, this is part of society and that these are, you know, have the same kind of loving family relationships that um, their own family has, you know, and the same problems, right, that they're real families and that they're out there. And so I think you see pushes in some ways coming in that maybe are a little bit different these days than historic trends um, around some of these issues, but it's actually reflecting in many ways U.S. society in many places. Mm -hmm. And then the, the crux of it comes up if 
that either doesn't somehow comes into conflict with a population of people in your community that hold those strong views or again if it's being sort of used at this point which the example is of to try to get people to um, challenge things in the school in a different way with some other kind of political right mm. Thank you so much for speaking to that. And I want to welcome Tom to WORT 89.9. This is a public affair, and I'm your host, Ali Maldro. Tom, you have a question about groups like Moms for Liberty. Uh, if your guest had um, ever heard of them, um, you know, to me, they're a rabid right organization, and, um, you know, they're against. Uh, school curriculums that mention LGBT rights and race and critical race theory. And, uh, you know, they're, uh, you know, want to ban books from school libraries that address uh, gender and sexuality issues. And I was just curious if your guests had ever heard of that group. Oh, thank you so much for that incredibly on-topic question. I'm like, somebody understood the assignment. Jeremy, have you, have you heard of the group? Are you familiar with the work they're doing? I, I have heard of the group, and, and there's a number of them out there um, that oftentimes are organized by other sort of conservative-leaning groups. And so I think one of the things often to look for, um, which is what sort of a great fact-checking exercise in and of itself, is to start to look to see where their funding comes from. And oftentimes, if it comes largely from a donor or a foundation with a particular political leaning, even if they're claiming to be, um, you know, nonpartisan or, or, you know, a nonprofit that that has, you know, not political views, but they're there for the protection of family values or things like this. There's usually particular words and phrases as well as their their money trained in terms of where the funding is coming from and where they operate. Are they, you know, across multiple states where you're also seeing legislation come through or other signs of sort of organized action? So I think for the most part, when these groups arise, you'll find that very similar things are being um, arguments are being used, media placements are included, um, even ads are being taken out or run using the same keywords. Um, one of the things that we saw come up as a, an example, and it was true in the Wisconsin hearings around these anti-CRT laws, um, was the example that um, a young white boy came home to his grandmother and said, Grandma, am I bad because I'm white? Um, and while that may have happened somewhere along the way, you saw it pop up in the news as an example being used in almost every state where this legislation was also proposed. And so you can start to see that's actually part of a, you know, a media campaign, essentially, to try to um, sell this as a real threat to people and to try to get them to take action on it, whether it's to put pressure on their legislators to support legislation like this or to put pressure on their school board to support book bans in some way. Um, or onto the, the teachers. And the goal is to, you know, essentially, again, chill teacher speech in terms of engaging in these issues in class, in terms of um, thinking twice when they're going to include a, uh, a book or even an example that they know will empower a student in their class. And I think, you know, one of the real threats from someone who, who's been in public education now for a long time is, you know, the reason why teachers are doing this is not to harm your child in some way. It's actually probably to try to be inclusive in the classroom of the students that they actually um, know and care about and want to be successful. And that includes your students too. And so I think one of the big selling messages I'd like to get across is, you know, teachers are not there with some nefarious political um, mission that they're on. They are actually there because they care about students. They want them to grow academically. They want them to grow as citizens and they want them to be engaged in, um, you know, in making the U.S. a more inclusive and, and better place. I think, you know, as as you speak to that, it makes me think about kind of this conversation around parents' rights. And you mentioned this earlier, and the caller mentioned this group advocates for, for parents' rights. And I think living in a country where there is no maternity leave, there's no child care, there's no health care for kids, um, to think that the rights parents really want and need right now um, are, are the rights to to ban certain kinds of books um, is is upsetting to me. And at the same time, I think the campaign against public education is really a fear of, you know, uh, of, of people's intelligence, of how powerful people are when they 
have the capacity to think from, for themselves critically um, and creating barriers to thinking critically um, and to having, you know, a real a real range in terms of how folks show up intellectually. I think it is easier to scare somebody if they are not well informed, if they don't trust their ability to find accurate information for themselves. Can you can you kind of talk about, you know, what what it looks like to embrace education and support education right now? So if all of these things are, you know, chipping away at the integrity of learning, um, what can we do right now to get behind our teachers to support education, to make sure that uh, we're, we're protecting our kids by protecting their right to think for themselves? Yeah, I think there's there's two real things. And some of this comes with what we talk with our um, teachers who are going to go out into the field from our pre-service teacher education programs, because, of course, they're concerned about these things and, does, and trying to figure out where am I going to teach and what's the type of setting I want to teach in. And so we talk with them a lot about what are ways that you can engage with the parents of your students to let them know this is what's going on in my classroom and here's why I'm doing it. Do you send out at the beginning, one of the goals of our class is to engage in social issues to help students really fully understand them, not to push their values on them, not to even have students come out in a particular way in terms of, of what those views are, but ex at least exposing and engaging with the ideas of these different views so that they can have a better understanding of the world. And so oftentimes, one of the best ways to do this for teachers is to be transparent with parents. Let them know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Invite them into your classroom. Be part of that conversation. And most of the times when this is the case, you know, what they're what the parents are being told externally, what's going on in the classroom, or when they get little, you know, snippets coming out from their from their child's sort of classroom in that way, it isn't what the goal is going on. And, and most parents then understand it better. So I think having that trust and communication with parents is key and with the community overall. I also really think that um, school districts need to come together and decide what values they have. And so that administrators, departments of, of faculty, teaching faculty, school boards are all on the same page and that that page is the goals that you're talking about. That I, at the end of the day, we have to prepare students, you know, for, for what the future is going to hold and not for some vision of of um, you know these these kinds of threats to their personality from before, or, or thinking that you can you know by banning a particular book that they're never going to run across this topic. Um, as you know, they're going to see it on TikTok the next day or something. No, it's amazing. I I taught a book with my students called Pleasure Activism by Adrian Marie Brown, who we interviewed on the show a few years ago. Um, and I'm teaching this book, and this book is a really sex positive book. Um, with high school kids, right? I'm not teaching five-year-olds. I'm, I'm teaching, you know, kids who engage in all kinds of behaviors. And we have all kinds of data that verifies that these young people um, are more likely to be sexually active or engage in, you know, a variety of, of acts of affection. Um, and I had a parent who said, you know, this book feels really explicit. And we had a really beautiful conversation, but it was hilarious to me because at the time, the number one song in America was WAP by Cardi B. If you don't know what WAP is, I'm not sure I can even explain it on the radio um, but my students all knew the song knew all the words to the song and so the idea that this book was dangerous and and they would not be exposed to um, sexually explicit content if I wasn't reading with them um, was something I, I thought was was really really interesting I think you know for those of us who who want to support schools who want to support teachers who want to see our young people be successful I think one of the things that we miss in this conversation about banned books um, um, is how it hurts kids because it is framed as something we do to protect kids. Um, and I think as a person who's been an activist within the LGBTQ community for a long time, um, thinking about, you know, my students who have killed themselves, my students who have ended up homeless, my students who have been rejected by their parents, who have been abused by their families because they are gay. Um, I think that their story and the harm that they experienced, the bullying that they experienced is erased when we act like banning books about them is going to protect somebody else. Can you talk a little bit about what banning books does to kids? Yeah, I think in particular, um, for students who are, you know, either forming their own identities or, or identify as LGBTQ or, um, you know, again, come from, say, a, a, a multiracial family, 
these can be incredibly hurtful things because you're essentially banning them from the classroom in many ways. You're banning sort of their views. You're banning access to maybe people who have similar experiences to you from things that you can relate with. Um, and so actually making that a school policy, you know, is, is potentially really harmful. And I think as you're saying, you know, I think teachers in many cases are including these types of stories, these perspectives in the classroom to help students who may identify this way to know that they are included in that school and that these are safe spaces for them to engage and learn and form their own identities and opinions on things. And so, again, this has to be done well, though. And if your teachers are including these books and not thinking about what those reactions will be like in their classroom, if they haven't developed the sort of community in their classroom yet for it, you know, that can also be somewhat harmful. And we've heard this from everything from, um, you know, inclusion of, of LGBTQ positive books to things around teaching about stereotypes of, of everyone from Muslims being portrayed as, as terrorists to, um, you know, longstanding stereotypes that can be included in some of these texts. So obviously they need to be engaged with in really thoughtful ways. And that's why you want a really professional, well-trained um, teaching staff to be able to engage in it. And so that's why I think this, this threat, both to the impact on potentially on students, but also the potential impact on driving more well-trained, professional, caring teachers out of the classroom, you know, both of those I think are, are, are really potentially highly impactful um, uh, events that could occur out of things like these continued sort of book bans and, and the restrictions on um, public schooling in many ways. I think, you know, we, we've only got a couple minutes left, but I, I really want to thank all the teachers who are out there who are making their classrooms inclusive, who are making their classrooms safe for all students, who are including diverse representation in, in their books and in what they bring to their students. And I think about this from a parent perspective of, you know, are there books that I have ever been afraid would hurt my kid? And I... I have an old copy of Babar that has depictions of black people in it that are um, caricatures. They're they're kind of cruel, uh, belittling caricatures. And when I got the book, I got it because I really loved that it was cursive. Um, and I and so then I'm looking through the pictures and I realized this and I thought about getting rid of it and decided like my kids should actually understand that there's a history of creating these kinds of images about black people. Um, when you think about are there books that you think kids aren't ready for, should be kept from the classroom, are so harmful that that you agree with banning them? That's a tough question. I mean, I think one of the books that recently has been political is, um, or you know, sort of in the in the in the controversy that way is Mein Kampf, mm -hmm. which the the copyright protection ended on it, and so the publisher no longer owns the rights, and now you can republish. Um, versions of it. And there was a real, I think, for a lot of libraries trying to decide, is this a book that we want in our libraries because of its history and power of anti-Semitism and leading into the Holocaust? And to me, that's an open question. I mean, I, I think, if, would you have it in a public school library where just anyone could check it out and take it? Probably not. I think with all these cases, it's how those texts are being engaged with and used. So if it's a portion of a book like you're speaking of that's being used in a classroom, placed in historical context, talking about the role that these images had historically, you know, I think a teacher could do really a great job in then connecting those stereotypes and images and what they were trying to portray at that time with current day stereotypes. And that could be a really interesting conversation to have. So I think there are some books maybe that, um, you want to have be able to put in a particular context, maybe, but I, I, I don't get into sort of listing names of, of banning books myself. I can very much appreciate that about you, Jeremy, and I cannot thank you enough for joining us today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldrow. This is a public affair. Make sure to call and let Rochelle know how much we love her and how much we will miss her. Um, Rochelle, thanks for everything always.